In this module, we move on to one of my favorite topics. Now, you may recall from the lecture we had on stress and resiliency that it's our response to a situation that determines its effect on us. Now, we talked about several ways in which someone might be able to increase resilience to stress, like mind-body work, fostering positive relationships. And this brings us back to that idea of talking about an overall positive approach. In fact, there is an, a whole field in the field of psychology that explores this concept. So by the end of this module, I hope that you'll be able to describe the basic foundations of positive psychology and distinguish it from the traditional views in psychology and recognize the benefits of having an attitude of gratitude and a growth mindset. Identify attributes of emotional positivity. Recall the evidence-based information on gratitude, positivity, and laughter, particularly as it relates to health. And then discuss the individual components of a well-being theory called PERMA. Now, just as an overview to try to create a framework for you here, we'll explore several aspects of positive psychology, which got its start in the concept of optimism. And as positive psychology developed, it, it built off of work by someone named Martin Seligman, who did work with strengths and virtues, Carol Dweck, which did work on growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, Barbara Fredrickson on emotional positivity, positive emotions and the broaden and build theory, and then further work by Seligman and Emmons on gratitude. There's also some that a little bit of information we'll talk about with regard to the concept of happiness, the benefit of laughter to health, and then going beyond the concept of happiness to something that Seligman um, and Fredrickson called flourishing and the model or theory that Seligman developed for well-being theory. But let's start with some of the origins of positive psychology, and that had to do with observations surrounding optimism versus pessimism. And we've probably all known people in our lives who we'd consider an optimist or others we might consider a pessimist. And in general, an optimist expects that positive outcomes are going to occur in the future, but they also expect they can cope successfully with whatever is in their life that comes up. Whereas a pessimist kind of expects negative outcomes in the future and they don't expect to cope successfully. They have doubt about their ability to overcome those things. But in both observation and research, people with high levels of optimism have been hypothesized to demonstrate enhanced resilience and a greater physical and psychological well-being compared to those with low levels of optimism. In fact, research evidence does support this hypothesis. Optimism and recovery from disease is found that those who are more optimistic, they tend to have improved not only physiological recovery, but an improved adjustment psychosocially to things that could be pretty big in their life, like coronary artery bypass surgery, bone marrow transplantation, postpartum depression in women, 
traumatic brain injury, Alzheimer's disease, lung cancer, breast cancer, and failed in vitro fertilization. Now, one psychologist and researcher decided that we needed to go beyond this concept of optimism and embrace a bigger picture. So I mentioned the name Martin Seligman. Now, he was doing research on optimism in the 1990s. And Interestingly, in 1996, he was elected the president of the American Psychological Association by the largest margin of vote in modern times. And he made it the mission of the American Psychological Association to refocus it, to promote a new direction in psychology research that embraced positive psychology. And working with somebody else you may recognize, we talked about flow theory when we talked about stress, that idea that there is good stress that can produce good outcomes and productivity. And that was the work of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. He worked with Seligman to propose a positive psychology approach and published a paper in 2000 in the American Psychologist Journal. Now, Seligman went on to further talk about this idea of positive psychology and is actually considered the forefather of positive psychology. This was a really big deal at the time because traditional psychology research prior to the 1990s had focused mainly on mental illness, dysfunction, disease. In other words, it was about trying to fix what's wrong with people rather than what if we promoted factors that optimized experience leading to flourishing and thriving, not just managing negative emotion, while that still is important, but what if we went beyond that? So several of the researchers in this area define positive psychology as the study of the strengths and virtues that enable people to thrive. And it's founded on the belief that people want to lead a meaningful, fulfilling life. It's not just about bringing the negatives up to a normalcy or, you know, a common denominator. It's about cultivating what is best within people and in allowing them to enhance their own experiences in life of work, play, and love and relationships. So Seligman did a whole lot of research on this idea of strengths and virtues. How do we help people recognize their own strengths and virtues so that they can leverage those to improve the experiences in their life? So in his research, he identified six overarching virtues underneath which there were 24 character strengths. So you can see here those six virtues of wisdom, courage, humanity, transcendence, justice and moderation. And among those virtues, individual people might have varying levels of strengths that have other specific um, direction within that virtue. For example, underneath wisdom, some people have a strength in creativity, curiosity, judgment, love of learning, and perspective. And then in others who have a virtue of courage, they're particularly strong in bravery, persistence, honesty, and a zest for life. And for those under whom the virtue of humanity is strong, they may have particular capacity for love, kindness, and a greater social intelligence than others. Among those for whom transcendence is a particular virtue, they might have a greater appreciation of beauty, a greater aptitude for gratitude, hope, humor, and spirituality, and the virtue of justice, a greater aptitude for teamwork, 
fairness and leadership and in the virtue of moderation, a greater ability for forgiveness, modesty, prudence, and self-control. And so helping individuals to recognize things so that they can be leveraged for the positive experience in their life, this became a, a focus of Seligman's research to the point where he actually developed a scientifically validated survey of character strengths, allowing people to identify, investigate those virtues, and then suggest ways to use them in everyday life, which produced a greater fulfillment and positive experience. Now, his work led to an explosion of research and how people can grow and develop their potential. And another researcher, Carol Dweck, did studies on the growth mindset. Now, this was an important contribution because it recognized that not all people believe they have an effect on their outcomes. Her initial work dealt with intelligence and has since been applied to other decision-making processes, but it, it explored whether a person's intelligence is malleable or fixed. And if it's malleable, it was suggested that a person's mindset is, well, if I make a mistake, I can learn from it and try to figure it out the next time. That growth mindset allows people to cultivate their potential. It allows them to change and grow, as opposed to a fixed mindset in which people don't believe they can change their circumstances. They don't believe they can get any smarter. They don't believe they can work from and learn from their mistakes. So that means for those people with a fixed mindset, they feel that their intelligence, character, and qualities are more set in stone. And what's pretty interesting about that is further research indicated that the brain works a little bit differently in those who have a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. So for example, when electrical potentials were measured in the scalp from electrodes in a Lycra cap worn over the head, they found that electrical signals that were measured while working on a puzzle were different among those who had a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. So there was a difference between the initial response of the brain to an error and the second response to an error. And what this indicated was that people were having a different thinking response. In other words, those with a growth mindset were thinking, what can I do to correct this in the future? So they were able to embrace more of a problem-solving growth mindset approach. So what they found was, you can see a difference in the color here, the greater activity of electrical potential that was observed was found in those who had a growth mindset. So they had a greater difference in the voltage of electrical activity in their brain. And so what that indicated was a growth mindset. So that had a greater difference between the voltage detected with an incorrect answer versus the vo voltage detected during that growth mindset with correct learning from their mistake and then having a, a um, correct answer subsequently. So this essentially meant that those who believed that they could learn from their mistakes did better when they did make a mistake because they learned from it. Their brains created a larger second signal that helped note for them that they needed to pay more attention the next time. And then as they stayed 
attuned to those mistakes, they were able to learn from them. It altered their thinking and therefore their performance subsequently. They learned from their mistakes. Now, what might this mean in terms of health behaviors? So this could be equated to an individual who believes they can't change their health behaviors because their situation is fixed. In other words, I can't change my circumstances. I can't change my diet. I'm only able to eat because of this situation, these foods. I might only be able to exercise or not be able to exercise because these are my circumstances. I don't have time. Whereas if an individual feels that they're capable of changing their situation, capable of growth, they might have a greater brain power as evidenced by the electrical activity toward that problem solving process from learning from their mistakes. Now it's not just about our thinking. It turns out our mood also interacts with our cognitive processing. In fact, exec executive functioning might be the source of this interaction between how we feel, our mood, and what we think and therefore do. It turns out that negative mood may actually reduce cognitive flexibility. In other words, it's kind of akin to the fixed mindset. We don't have an ability to change and adapt if we have a negative mood. Whereas, if we think about it in terms of mood affecting health-related behaviors and decisions, positive mood accounts for increasing cognitive flexibility. And in fact, there are certain parts of the brain that seem to be more active with that. Those areas play an important role in hypothesis testing. As people make decisions in their lives, this means they might be in trying to problem solve. They might be open to more creativity open to more processing of information to make a different choice. So positive mood is equated with increased cognitive flexibility. So with this concept of mood influencing thinking and behavior, some researchers have explored the benefits of cultivating more positive emotion. Now, what's really interesting here, this researcher, Barbara Fredrickson, proposed that there are 10 positive emotions that if you can encourage and cultivate in your life, in particular every day, if possible, that you will have a greater sense of well-being and perhaps see that build in your life into other areas. Now, what's really interesting here is these are the 10 forms of positivity she suggested. Joy, serenity, hope, amusement, awe, gratitude, interest, a sense of pride, inspiration, and love. But you'll notice that happiness is not one of the 10 forms of positive emotion she included. And what's interesting is in fact, both she and Martin Seligman had issues with this word, this term happiness. They both felt as though this was connected with mood, which changes from time to time. And that in many ways, Fredrickson felt that you could be much more specific than this term happiness. She thought it was an overused and murky term. She felt that most of the time you could better describe a positive emotion with a much more specific, more meaningful term. And so that's what generated her, or that caused her to generate this list of 10 forms of positive emotion that you would 
try to nurture. She proposed that by consciously cultivating these positive emotions, you can broaden and build in your life. She suggested that people experiencing positive emotions have a wider awareness and can see the big picture. That positive emotions help us to see more possibilities. And people experiencing positive emotions are more likely to be resilient. So you can probably see the connections here. People that are more resilient adapt better to stress. And we talked previously about the impact of stress on health behavior and health outcomes. But this idea of a big picture is also very important, particularly as you work with individuals to help them to adopt new health behaviors. And in fact, this isn't just related to health behaviors. She did a lot of work along with Carol Dweck. They both looked at academics. For example, even kids do better academically before a math test if they think of a pleasant, positive memory. Positive emotions also help us feel more socially connected. We're more trusting and we come to better relationship decisions, win-win solutions. So you can see here that this concept of positivity goes far beyond just making us feel good. In fact, she suggested that positive emotions, they broaden our thinking to novel thoughts, activities, and relationships, and we're able to build enduring personal resources, social support, resilience, skills, and knowledge, and look at that final top. And you'll notice this is not a top down. This is a bottom up suggested theory because as you enhance health, survival, and fulfillment, you circle back. She suggested the idea of an upward spiral generated by the broaden and build theory of positive emotions. So if you look at it this way and think of this in terms of a health behavior, as you make a commitment to changing a health behavior, and working toward um, more positive lifestyle behaviors, you increase hopefulness and optimism, build confidence, enthusiasm, expectation, and belief. You also increase passion, particularly as you gain success in that area. And you ultimately have more joy, knowledge, empowerment, freedom, love, and appreciation. So that's what the upward spiral is. And you, this may look familiar to you because there was a similar diagram we used when talking about appreciative inquiry as part of a coaching tool. And so this positive psychology core is really essential to helping individuals overcome some of those barriers to moving forward positively with health behaviors. Because what can happen is the opposite. People become pessimistic they become overwhelmed, frustration, disappointment, worry, blame, discouragement, revenge. They end up having a downward spiral that ultimately can lead to depression, powerlessness, a feeling of a victim, feeling as though they cannot alter their health or their health circumstances. So how do we promote an upward spiral, positive emotion? How do we get more positivity? Well, Fredrickson suggested these things. Be open. So having an open mind. Be appreciative. We talked about a similar upward spiral in appreciative inquiry. Being curious. Being kind. Being real. Being sincere. And one of the 10 positive emotions on her list that has received a lot of attention and research 
is gratitude. This is one of the things across the board that seems to greatly influence positivity. So it's worth talking a bit more about. Now, gratitude has been associated with increased subjective happiness. It seems to increase subjective well-being and increase positive emotions. It also seems to help people deal with adversity. They can build strong connections and relationships and improve their overall health. So here is, for example, a research study that was published, and you may notice this name. So this was published in 2005, and it was attempting to broaden that research base on positive psychology. And they were looking at, well, if we instead want to, instead of having interventions to fix what's wrong with people from a psychology perspective, we might want to have a similar set of interventions we can promote for people to increase their well-being from a positive psychology standpoint. So this was a great article for suggesting what research indicates might be valid interventions to improve positive psychology work. So Seligman in the beginning did quite a bit of work on gratitude, and this was a really interesting study that he did initially. He compared the effects of five weekly assignments. He had a placebo or control exercise where people just wrote about their early memories. He suggested a gratitude visit where you write and hand deliver a thank you note or letter of gratitude, where you took time to write three things that went well each day and what contributed to them, taking time to write about a time when you were at your best and consider a person's strengths. And then a step further, another activity was to identify and use signature strengths in a new way. So he had people identify what their top five strengths were, had them choose one to use in a new and different way for one week. And what's really interesting here is several of these five had significant results. So having people write each day three things that went well in their causes, in other words, three things they're grateful for, and using a strength in a new way for one week, increased happiness and decreased depressive symptoms for up to six months. And the really interesting one, writing and personally delivering a letter of gratitude to someone who hadn't been properly thanked showed an immediate increase in happiness score. And the benefits of that activity lasted a month. Now, this was a small sample size, and it was self-reporting to gather the data, but there has been a ton of other work since that time. For example, a researcher named Robert Emmons also contributed a lot of research on gratitude. And there are several studies here I'm going to, to go over. In a two-month period, he actually used students, undergraduate students, as subjects. He asked one group to list blessings and another group to list hassles or neutral life events on a weekly basis. The people who kept gratitude lists were more likely to have made progress in their personal goals, whether that be academic, interpersonal, or health-based. Now, what do I mean by health-based? This is where it gets interesting. Something as simple as listing your blessings those people who kept that weekly gratitude journal, they exercised more regularly. They reported 
fewer physical symptoms. They felt better about their lives as a whole. And they were more optimistic about the upcoming week. But this is not all. He kept going with this line of inquiry. He had undergraduate students again, but with three conditions over a two-week period. In one case, they did a daily gratitude intervention with some self-guided exercise. In another case, they were asked to focus on things that annoyed them or hassles. And in another case, he had individuals focus on social comparison. In other words, kind of looking down on others, being more judgmental. What's interesting here, the group that did a daily gratitude intervention, they showed more gratitude. They had higher levels of alertness, enthusiasm, determination, attentiveness, and energy compared to the other groups. And they were more likely to have offered emotional support to others and helped someone else with a problem. So here we see a connection to social support, one of those lifestyle pillars we've been talking about. And gratitude is not just for healthy undergraduate students. It can be a critical part of disease management in the healthcare field. A third study took 65 adults with neuromuscular disease as subjects and had an intervention and control group, again, that used a gratitude intervention listing blessings. And what they found was that there were greater amounts of high energy positive mood, a greater sense of feeling connected to others, more optimistic ratings of one's health and life, and here's an interesting outcome, better sleep duration and quality, yet another connection to an essential lifestyle pillar in lifestyle medicine. And what's interesting here too is other studies have shown connections with gratitude and lifestyle pillars like sleep and mental health disorders like depression and anxiety. The amount of gratitude shown in someone's daily life compared to sleep quality and symptoms of anxiety, depression, it was found that higher levels of gratitude showed less depression and a higher quality of sleep. And when they controlled for sleep, gratitude didn't have an effect on anxiety, but gratitude did increase sleep. That decreased depression, and due to the increased sleep, that was found to decrease anxiety. So what might be happening here? Well, it turns out that studies of the brain on gratitude have found that there is a difference in blood flow in certain regions of the brain as it relates to gratitude. Subjects with more gratitude had higher levels of activity in the hypothalamus. Now we've talked about parts of the brain in previous modules, but as a reminder, the hypothalamus is that control center for some of your vital life functions like sleeping, eating, drinking, stress, metabolism. So here's why it might be connected to lifestyle behaviors. This is why we might wanna consider something as simple as expressing gratitude as part of an intervention for improving lifestyle behaviors and health. So how do we help people to do this? How do we help people cultivate gratitude? Now, we could encourage people to keep a gratitude journal, learn prayers of gratitude, even visual reminders, just to even help people stop and think, even if they're not writing it down. But writing it down is beneficial. In fact, Dr. Emmons suggested creating a list of benefits in your life and ask yourself, 
to what extent do I take these for granted? Because stopping and creating awareness there increases gratitude. And even just cultivating a general optimism can be helpful. Another researcher suggested talking yourself into a creative, optimistic place, an appreciative inquiry kind of approach, an appreciative manner with your approach in life. And that goes so far as to even taking what might be perceived as a negative situation and looking at it with a different, more positive attitude, this idea of reframing. And you can even do that with a patient or client. When they're coming to you in a conversation with a specific issue, you could ask them to reframe it for you. Now, what would it be like if you looked at that from this perspective? Or how could you reframe that in a positive way? Now, a super simple approach to suggest to patients and clients would be this idea of keeping a gratitude journal. So for example, Every night, list three things for which you are grateful. And this is actually an activity that I've suggested all of you do in this, this module. In fact, this has been studied as a therapeutic intervention for depression. Now, you could use a fit prescription here with a patient or client. You could say daily, list three good things that have happened or that you're grateful for. And you could say, reflect on those for five minutes. And you could do it through a journal, particularly if individuals are into journaling. Or for someone who maybe um, wants an instant increase in happiness, supported by the literature, ask them once a week to generate a brief thoughtful note, even if it's just five minutes, a thank you note. And for a super fast boost in happiness, hand deliver that note to an individual who perhaps hasn't been properly thanked recently. Now, speaking of Martin Seligman, after his initial research on gratitude, he also explored the concept of happiness. And it's not what some may think. What has been understood here is that we have this perception of what makes us happy. However, research indicates the things that make us feel good in the moment are not necessarily the things that make life feel worth living. They're not sustainably happy things. The problem is that in a moment, we often think that possessions, money, or even alcohol and drugs, winning a medal, some sort of professional accomplishment, buying a new phone, a new car, a second home, new clothes, we think those make us happy. However, Research says that possessions don't do that. In fact, there is a genetic set point that people return to after the happiness associated with some of these things goes away. Some of your circumstances contribute slightly. So if your genetic set point makes up about half of a contributor to your overall happiness, Circumstances make up another 10%. That's still not much. What has been found is that 40% of your happiness is within your control. 
You have the ability through intentional activity and thought processes to change your level of happiness. So how do we help people move beyond this perception of what brings the momentary happiness to finding true happiness, which often has more to do with purpose, meaning, and well-being? Because this is what can have vast benefits for behavior change and health. Now Seligman went on to write a book called authentic happiness, but he reluctantly used the term happiness. He, in fact, felt that it, much like Fredrickson mentioned, it's overused and often that the word happiness is equated with mood, which can change from day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute. In looking beyond that, he felt that happiness had more to do with a meaningful life using your strengths and virtues. Remember, he's the one that suggested people find out what their strengths and virtues are so that you can use them in service of something larger than yourself. Now, what he wanted to do here was to reconcile two views of human happiness, what people might traditionally think of as happiness, which is more of an individualistic approach, taking care of ourselves, nurturing ourselves and our individual strengths, and bringing it to what research indicates actually leads to happiness, which is more of an altruistic approach. In other words, using your strengths and virtues for greater purpose and meaning in your life, which goes beyond you and connects you to the outside world. Now, he proposed at that time that happiness had three dimensions that could be cultivated. The pleasant life, we've talked about positive emotion. Remember, we talked about Fredrickson and her work of those 10 positive emotions. And then he also said, if you combine that with virtues and strengths and actually use them, you could live both a pleasant life worth positive emotion and what you would consider a good life. But that third dimension is what he was really striving for to reach this altruistic approach with happiness. And that's that if you want a deep sense of fulfillment, you strive to use your strengths for a purpose that is greater than yourself. Now, purpose and meaning then are essential. In fact, this wasn't a new observation that Seligman made. In fact, observations made in World War II helped with this understanding. In a book called Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, which was, he, he was an Austrian psychiatrist, neurologist, and philosopher, and a Holocaust survivor, he observed that in some individuals during their occupation or time spent in a concentration camp, that some individuals were in despair and others were not. He concluded that despair happened because suffering in someone's life had no meaning. So even people in the most atrocious circumstances, like a concentration camp, could exist in that environment without feeling despair. Now, how would that possibly be? He realized that some of those individuals were turning tragedy into triumph by finding meaning in their suffering. Those concentration camp prisoners whose minds were fixated on an all-consuming reason to live, reuniting with loved ones, completing unfinished work in their professional or personal lives, alerting the world to these atrocities. Those individuals who had a sense of purpose and meaning, they were more likely to survive the concentration camp. So these 
understandings of the importance of purpose and meaning are not new. But as we apply those to health and disease, we see their benefit to survival and overcoming or even reducing risk of disease. So positive psychological conditions have been researched, and we know that cardiovascular disease is the leading killer, the leading cause of death in the world and in the U.S. So researchers have looked, and they found that the perceived level of enjoyment is considered a positive psychological condition that reflects the ability to engage pleasurably with the environment, and it produces a physiologic effect. So researchers um, in the late 1990s looked at more than 88,000 subjects. And this was in Japan. They took both women and men who did not have cardiovascular disease, and they actually followed them for 12 years and gave them a self-administered questionnaire asking a pretty simple question. Are you enjoying your life? And asked them to rate that as low, yes, medium, yes, or high enjoyment of their life. And what they found here was that Japanese men with a low perceived level of life enjoyment, they had an increased risk for stroke and coronary heart disease. Not only the incidence of it, but also their mortality if they did have a cardiovascular event. So these findings suggested that Japanese men had a protective role purely from their psychological conditions. Women, on the other hand, didn't really show any association with their risk of cardiovascular disease as it related to their psychological um, condition. Now, there are some limitations to this. It was just one question. And there are different risks to cardiovascular disease for men and women based on their age. We know that men's risks go up as of 55, that women have a little bit longer before their risks go up. So it's possible that there are some intervening circumstances here. But other research has supported the opposite. Negative psychological conditions increase risk of heart disease. In fact, a large number of studies show an association between negative psychological conditions and higher risk of cardiovascular disease. Specifically, depressive symptoms, more anger, hostility, anxiety, and hopelessness have been associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Now, what about if we look at life satisfaction? Is there a correlation? Well, another study was done looking at whether life was satisfying, and then looking at heart disease incidents. So these researchers looked at a little bit more detail than just a single question. In fact, they looked at several domains in what they considered overall life enjoyment or life satisfaction. They took almost 8,000 again, healthy subjects, and looked at the outcomes of cardiovascular disease, angina or heart pain or um, chest pain, non-fatal um, myocardial infarction, or death. And they looked at a five-year follow-up using a seven-point Likert scale. And they asked, all things considered, how satisfied or dissatisfied are you with these following areas in your life? They looked at seven areas, marital or love relationships, leisure time activities, their standard of living, their job, their feelings about themselves as a person, 
their family life and their sex life. And what's really interesting here is that they found that subjects that scored higher than average in all those categories, they had up to 13% less risk of heart disease, heart attack, and chest pain. What they found, however, was not standard across all seven of those domains. They found that the lower risk of cardiovascular disease was evident primarily in four life domains, job, family, sex life, and feelings about people, uh, about themselves as a person. So truly, your life satisfaction seems to have a connection, so psychologically again, to incidence and risk of cardiovascular disease. Now, if this wasn't interesting enough, another interesting observation came with the finding that laughter can make a difference. Norman Cousins, considered the father of laughter therapy, had a very painful condition called ankylosing spondylitis. And he was in the hospital, treatment was not working, he actually left the hospital frustrated, ended up taking some high doses of vitamin C, and in a motel nearby watched some Marx Brothers and Candid Camera. And that, of course, dates it because this was in the mid-70s, so these might not be things you're familiar with, but in general, these are comedic shows. He reported that 10 minutes of humor that resulted in what you might describe as belly laughing relieved his pain for two hours. And he even felt as though he slept better, that he had two hours of sleep. He ended up writing an article for the New England Journal of Medicine and wrote a book on this topic. And it wasn't just a fluke observation. Because an article in 2016, right in the American Journal of Lifestyle Medicine, outlined the overall research that confirms the influence of laughter, laughter on health and health behaviors. In fact, this was initially accepted in 2014, published um, uh, in 2016 in this journal. So this is recent information. So the next few uh, slides here, I'm going to summarize some of the information provided in this article about using laughter as a prescription tool for lifestyle medicine. Now, believe it or not, there are categories of type or types of laughter and even theories about laughter. So in terms of types of laughter, we're probably most familiar with spontaneous laughter. This is genuine from something funny, humor, a joke, or a sitcom, a show, a movie, something that you would associate with entertainment, something that brings you enjoyment. It can also be simulated. You can force laughter. And again, believe it or not, there is an entire therapy related to laughter called laughter yoga, where forced laughter is combined with yoga breathing. And by the end, it is no longer so much forced laughter, but tends to lead to a more genuine, spontaneous laughter, particularly because laughter can be contagious. The physical act of laughing is enough to create a physiologic effect. And there's even a theory related to that. Motion creates emotion theory, states that just the physical act of doing something may create the physical effects of it. And believe it or not, there are over a hundred different laughter theories, but most of the research is dominated by three. 
The first is release theory, that this is a physical manifestation of sort of a repressed emotion, that this enjoyment just is a release for us, as opposed to some that might be more of a negative use of laughter, for example, increasing your own self-esteem at the expense of others. And you've probably experienced this before, where there is laughter that's more condescending, laughter that is at the expense of someone else. And then sometimes there is laughter just because something doesn't make sense. It's incongruent. There's a disparity between two situations, two objects, or statements, or even two ideas within a joke. But it has been studied in research to have both psychological and physiological effects. So from that recent Journal of Lifestyle Medicine article, the psychological effects of laughter have improved mood or affect, improved depression and anxiety, decreased stress, and in dementia patients, it has decreased agitation, which can be a common issue. But research also shows that you have a physiological response to laughter. In fact, you get a release of endorphins. As the original um, book and article stated, you get an increase in pain tolerance, so a lowering of the pain perception. There's even an immune response. Natural killer cell activity seems to increase. And you have a decrease in total peripheral resistance and vasodilation, which effectively decreases blood pressure. And that's not the only observation of that. While you do get a little bit of an increase in epinephrine and norepinephrine, you also get a decrease in cortisol levels. And there might be an increase in systolic blood pressure, but overall after the event, there is a decrease in stress, which decreases cortisol and may have a more long-term effect of decreasing blood pressure. During that time, you have an experience similar to exercise in the sense that you get an increase in stroke volume and an increase in cardiac output. Who would have thought, right, that just laughter could do these things? And you might be thinking, there is no way, I really doubt this. Well, let's look at some of the research. So believe it or not, your arteries seem to know what you're watching on TV. So there was actually a study that took 20 non-smoking healthy men and women, average age of about 33, and asked them to view a 15 to 30 minute segment of a movie. Now, one clip was designed to induce mental stress, and the other was meant to induce laughter, and they were randomly assigned here. So they measured brachial artery blood flow as mediated by vasodilation. And believe it or not, they were able to determine from this whether someone was watching the comedy or the tragedy. Looking at the brachial flow mediated vasodilation, they found that the brachial artery flow was reduced in 14 of 20 after watching the mental stress clips. So blood flow was reduced when watching the stressful clip, as opposed to blood flow was increased in almost all of the subjects that watched the laughter clip. So how interesting is that? That it seems as though there is a physiological effect on the blood vessels. So 
What's crazy about this is that response, the negative response to the stressful clip was similar to anger and mental arithmetic in other research. So watching a funny movie or TV show has a beneficial effect to flow mediated vasodilation. There are similar improvements after aerobic exercise. So while we don't truly understand how this happened, we do know that laughter is positive. And that's not the only physiologic finding as related to laughter. It turns out the brain looks different with laughter. Here again, 20 participants, 10 men and women, they looked at comedy clips and their MRI brain scans looked different depending on whether that clip had high levels of humor or low levels of humor. And remember that concept of laughter yoga I recommended? There's even been a randomized controlled trial of using laughter yoga compared to group exercise and a control. In this case, these were geriatric depressed women in Iran. And they had either 10 sessions of laughter yoga, 10 sessions of jogging and stretching, or were just in a control group. Both the exercise group and the laughter yoga group had a decrease in their depression scores. How interesting is that? The laughter yoga group also had an increased life satisfaction compared to the control group. And this didn't actually show any significant difference if it was the laughter group or the exercise group. So same benefit as group exercise. So particularly in older adults who may have a reduced capacity for exercise, maybe laughter yoga would be a good alternative for having similar effects on, in particular here, depression. And as we saw in the previous research, potentially on their cardiovascular blood flow. Now, what about in other studies? Laughter yoga with IT professionals in India saw a greater drop in blood pressure compared to the control group and a significant drop in cortisol levels compared to the control group. And it's not just in these other countries. Well, I take that back. This one was also in another country, but this was in more closer to your age group. Laughter yoga and nursing students took eight one-hour laughter yoga classes twice a week compared to a control group that had no intervention. Those that were in the laughter yoga class, they had more of a positive effect on their general health, a reduction in sleep disorders, lowered anxiety and depression, and improved social functioning. So again, how interesting is this that just laughter might make a difference? Yet there are limitations of all this research. Only one of those that I mentioned was a randomized controlled trial. We need more of those. Several of them had pretty low power. In other words, very low sample sizes, not enough subjects. So we need a lot more in terms of randomized controlled trials, larger subject groups, and more long-term follow-up. We need clarifications between types of laughter. You know, some of the laughter in the initial studies with physiologic responses, those were viewing comedy. And that is different than laughter yoga, which is a forced laughter, at least in the beginning of that intervention. And we also need to look at the type of intervention that's actually being used. But regardless of these limitations, you could still use this if appropriate. So you could use this as a practitioner. It requires, however, a certain measure of trust and understanding and lightheartedness, which isn't appropriate in all therapeutic interactions or all 
um, practice encounters with a patient or client. You could pr improve communication by creating positive emotions and, and increasing that rapport that you might have with a patient or client. But it's best to follow the lead of that patient. If they seem to be more toward uh, humor, go ahead and follow that. There's no need to be sort of stuffy and reserved if they're expressing humor. And you can sort of test the waters and see how they respond. Now, if it's not easy in an encounter, it may be possible to promote it for an individual themselves. For example, you could ask and assess what has made you laugh recently. It can be a good conversation starter. You could even have a one minute conversation about laughter and how much they've laughed recently and see if they even know that laughter can have a positive effect. You could consider prescribing them to watch a funny movie instead of a war movie next time, or instead of the action movie or m murder mystery, try to find a comedy sketch. We've got the ability to stream and play things on demand these days. You can seek out something to boost your mood just by finding something that would promote laughter. You could consider even a prescription for laughter. Say, all right, weekly, see if you can spontaneously laugh by finding um, your favorite sitcom, find a comedy, find a movie, um, try laughter yoga, consider a comedy club. So these are things you can promote and even ask patients and clients about. Now, all this being said, let's step back a moment and look at all of this together. We've talked about all kinds of positive psychology factors, things related to happiness, positive emotion, and gratitude. Why? You know, does this really benefit health? Yes, it does. But let's say that you still doubt that. You can at least understand at least by changing someone's psychological approach, their thinking, that you may be able to better overcome roadblocks and health and behavior change. This can be a tool for you as a practitioner in your interactions with a patient or client by taking a positive psychology approach to a situation or conversation, you might be able to help a patient or client explore their strengths, adopt and foster a growth mindset, find more positive emotion and foster gratitude. That is one area that has a ton of research behind it. This may help lead to positive health decisions. So let's say that somebody comes in, they're feeling defeated, they are really struggling. You could, instead of having a conversation about them feeling like a failure with their diet, them feeling like a failure with their exercise plan, um, with their stress, with their sleep, take a moment to step back. Don't address any of those things. Instead, you could have a conversation that just addresses gratitude, that just addresses positive emotion, finding something in their day to be positive about. This might, taking a step back and not focusing on those individual health behaviors, might in the end generate a greater willingness to explore possibilities. It may increase their resilience. They may end up with more positive emotion, which has been found to generate an upward spiral. Remember that broaden and build theory. By increasing positive emotion, we might better allow people to open up their minds to the possibilities of changing circumstances. So this idea here, 
that Seligman proposed initially, he decided that, you know, we need to go beyond happiness. He and others proposed the idea of flourishing and thriving. So while his initial work reluctantly used the word happiness, his later work focused on well-being as a whole. In fact, he said, let's put all of this together. Positive emotion, engagement that uses your strengths and virtues, positive relationships, finding purpose and meaning and accomplishment, putting all of those together. He proposed a new theory of well-being called PERMA. That is the acronym standing for each of those five things that he suggested are foundational to positive psychology. His proposal was that by cultivating these things in your life, and for you as a practitioner with patients and clients, you can help individuals improve their well-being. This can go beyond a specific health behavior conversation. This can go beyond what might previously have been about them changing their specific behavior and looking at a big picture, positive approach to their life and well-being in general. Because by helping them in that way, they flourish and thrive long after their conversation with you, long after their relationship with you has ended. So this is an approach that can really be a guiding approach to overall positive psychology approaches to life in general and more specifically, improving health behaviors. So if you have any other questions about this, feel free to let me know, but I highly encourage you to look for books and articles on many of these researchers that I have talked about in this module because some of their readily available books um, through Amazon, for example, or other bookstores, have amazing tidbits of improving your life and well-being using this positive psychology approach.